Our four through six-year-olds can be dismissed at this time to Children's Church. Today we interrupt looking at Genesis to consider a subject close to what we've done in this service, one that I hope might have some principles of value for us. Acts chapter 1 is a book we haven't looked at in a long time here, breaking in on the text of Acts 1 right after the event, a glorious, unique event of Christ's ascension when He sent His disciples to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that He would give them. This is what we read, Acts 1, beginning at 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill of the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And then a parenthetical observation. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, and his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this and called that field in their language, Akel the field of blood. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it, but may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when he was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. And when they prayed, and then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is God's holy word. Certainly, the year 2008 and very recent events of the inauguration in January and a new president have us all focused quite a bit on the office of the U.S. presidency, which is not surprising to think about as the most prominent and powerful leadership office in the Western world. There are so many ways we can illustrate the prominence of the presidency. One of the things I 
constantly think about that is not emphasized too often is that our new president, Obama, as well as all his recent predecessors, has a military aide, an officer, who is never very far from him, only yards away even when he sleeps, who carries a, a set of classified codes that the President of the United States needs to declare a nuclear war, which could immediately, of course, kill millions of people. And even more mundane, although it isn't entirely mundane, when you think about the trappings of the presidency, do you realize that he flies, of course, in the airplane, Air Force One, a 747 jumbo jet equipped with all kinds of secret military devices? But it's not one but two airplanes that are kept prepared at all times. So if anything was wrong with one, the other could immediately be used. And both of those airplanes are constantly stocked and crews ready and staffs ready at a moment's notice to send either or both of those planes in service of the president. I recently learned that 100 people have full-time jobs just for that to keep those two planes ready to do that at a moment's notice. It gives you an idea of an office that is enormously expensive, highly visible, laden with publicity and worldly pomp and protocol. If the president twitches, the world knows. Every nuance of everything he says is discussed. Well, consider as an exact opposite. The office of any ministry leader in the church of Jesus Christ, not only pastors, ruling elders, deacons and deaconesses, but teachers, children's workers, parachurch workers, think of all those who serve and how our office, if it may be called that, compares to that of the presidency. Why, you would say it doesn't compare at all. I certainly don't know about a jumbo jet waiting for me to, say, give me a ride somewhere. Nor is there any of the the fame and the notice and the expense. There is, in fact, a relative lowliness and obscurity and attracting of rather little notice among the leadership positions of this world in general. The elders and pastors and deacons of the Church of Christ have zero in political clout. We don't command armies. And yet, ironically, we serve the higher Lord. We serve the one whose power is unlimited. And God's chosen church leaders do things that seem obscure and of little consequence right now, but yet think for a moment about everything President Obama will do in the coming weeks and and we think years, of course, of his presidency a trillion-dollar bailout of the banks or whatever it's going to be used for, declaring policy in the Middle East and perhaps policy relating to war and the movement of armies. Do you realize that the day will come when what an obscure children's worker in children's evangelism fellowship, child evangelism fellowship, or a pastor or an elder in our church counseling with someone, leading someone to Jesus Christ to bow their life before Him as King and Savior, do you realize which result is going to shine in eternity? Folks, eternity is going to know nothing of the trillion-dollar bailout, nor care. The work 
that the leaders in Christ's church does abides forever because our king abides forever. Now, Acts chapter 1 contains a short account of the first first search for a replacement Christian leader in the New Testament church. And while there are things quite unique about it, I think there are also some principles that we might take to heart and think about today. Just in background to this for a moment, Jesus had sent the disciples who witnessed the ascension to wait. They had a task to do. He told them they were going to go into the world and preach the gospel, but he didn't say, now, from from here, run out and do it. He said, go and wait until you receive power from me, the gift of the Holy Spirit, verses 4 and 5. I didn't read there. And then after the ascension, they obeyed that. They went back to Jerusalem, not just the 11 who were left, but more of them, more informal followers. We know there had been as many as 70 sent out at an earlier time to do ministry, We're told there were 120 who came around the original disciples and prayed and waited to see what God would do. And notice that we're given the names again. The names are given back when Jesus first selected these disciples. But the names of the remaining 11 are given us here, I think, so that we would remember that they were individuals. They were not simply a collective group. And, of course, the circumstances of of Judas's Suicide is, is rehearsed here if with even a little detail that doesn't appear in the gospel about his body bursting open after he had hung himself and apparently fallen to the ground. Little boys always love to read that for some reason. Uh, and, but we're reminded with Judas' apostasy that while what he did, no one would ever want to take the place of a traitor and say, I'm going to be the next traitor. Let that place be empty. Peter said. But Peter stood and reminded them from Scripture, quoting Scripture to back him up, that his place of leadership, as the NIV has it in verse 20, or his office, as other translations say it, must be filled. Christ had appointed 12 disciples. We think this corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel and the idea that they actually were were told they would one day judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And The reasoning was here, it was prayerful reasoning, that the place should be filled. So for the main time here, I want to take today, and my time's shorter than usual, but I want to suggest to you that there are some things here that tell us how to seek God's chosen leader. And the first is to know what the biblical office is that was being filled. So long as Jesus was present with the disciples, they didn't need officers. You know, they didn't have a little election and say, well, you're the secretary and you're the treasurer. We actually did have a treasurer, Judas. That was always interesting. You trust the least trustworthy guy. But they didn't have, you know, rankings of sergeant or colonel or anything like that. Jesus was their leader. He was the undisputed authority. But now he's gone. And they rightly understand we shall need to have some recognized organization of authority. We would think the Lord taught them this in those 40 days of resurrection appearances. He probably told them what an apostle was because that's the new name now. No longer just disciple, but apostle, which primarily means witness of the resurrection. Someone who can say with their life and their words, I know that Jesus was God in flesh and that he was raised alive. And they could go tell the world that with a certain authority. Well, I remind you 
that while there were a few others that were counted in this, certainly Paul later on at least, James, the Lord's brother, was probably counted as an apostle later. Probably Luke and Mark would have taken that name or deserved that name. So it went a little bit beyond these 12, but not very far. Because that was a unique office. An office of those who saw Christ resurrected were going to be themselves the vessel of God's revelation to be receiving what we call the New Testament Scripture. They had a unique task to see the Scriptures finished and the church found it. And God even gave miraculous gifts to them for that purpose. Their office is now extinct. If anyone comes along today, as some do at times, and say, well, I'm, I should be called an apostle, that person is either wickedly presumptuous or badly informed or just ignorant. Apostles were called by God for a one-time role of founding the church, and that office is gone. So in that sense, that particular office has no application to us. But we do look at this idea that there, is, there are biblical offices. And of course, we know as we explore this same book of Acts, those offices come into appearance rather quickly. Acts chapter 6 tells of the appearance of the office of deacon to help in a practical way and sympathetically support the people, the believers. And then a little later on, as more churches are being founded, the apostles put subordinate leaders called elders in place to both teach and rule over those churches, an office with authority of handling God's Word and making decisions for the flock. I personally believe 1 Timothy 3, as it gives qualifications for these offices, both deacons and elders, in a kind of backhanded way recognizes our deaconesses, because the wives of the deacons are even mentioned there in terms of qualifications they ought to have with the express idea or implication at least that they were assisting their husbands in diaconal ministry. You should review those qualifications every now and then. I would not be offended if you move your Bible pages and I hear them rustle and you go to page uh, the page that has 1 Timothy 3 and scan that as I'm speaking because I'm not going to read it off. But the measurements, the grid of qualifications that both deacons and elders in your church ought to fulfill are given there. And you know, they're not qualifications for supermen. We sometimes carry the nomination uh, or the news that someone is nominated and call the man to uh, let him know this, and we'll get a reaction, very strong reaction, and the person will say, oh, No, goodness, no, I could never be an elder. And it's evident that they have an idea that elders kind of walk a foot off the ground and perhaps too exalted an idea of elders. And we want to say to those people, well, remember, we're just sinners saved by grace. And to be called as an elder in the church or a deacon is a recognition that you are one of the flock of God saved by His grace. You're not You're not handling superpowers or something, but that God has done His sanctifying work in you in such a way that there are visible marks of it in your character, in your behavior, that others notice it. They notice your wisdom. They notice that you can teach the Word of God, that you have compassion for other people, that you're basically humble about the way you conduct yourself that your marriage is an honorable one, that you're not an argumentative person or a quarrelsome person always stirring up difficulty. 
and that you can't be accused of scandal or dishonesty. You're not the person that somebody would hear that John Smith is an elder in, in Westminster Church, and they would say, what? Him? An elder in your church? And you would want to know what they know that you don't know. You're simply one in whom the Holy Spirit has the process of growing in Christ being carried out, and it is a process for officers just as anyone else. But hopefully the process is moving along in a visible manner. So you need to know the office and its qualifications as you seek God's chosen leaders. But a second thing in seeking them, it needs to be sought with prayer. And you see how prayer is the whole atmosphere of this this process as it happens here. They were praying together, 120 of them, before Peter was moved to stand up and talk about this? Did God bring this to his mind through prayer, or did they discuss it and pray about it together before Peter instructed that this election should happen? We do know that they have this specific word given in verse 24 here of a prayer that they made in in setting apart the two men. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. They were very conscious that God's choice, just as God elects His people to salvation, they believe God is the one who calls leaders. And these leaders must be identified then by a cautious, reasonable process, but also a prayerful process. Paul said in Galatians 1, of course, he wasn't one of the original 12, but he contended that he was an apostle. He didn't do that proudly, but I think sincerely and authentically. And he said in Galatians 1.1, I am an apostle who was neither sent from men nor made by men. And he spoke about God's remarkable appearance to him and Christ revealing himself to him. Paul was saying the providential hand of God was involved in selecting me the most unlikely of all people. You know, I've watched this process of selecting church officers now for many, many years into the fourth decade of my ministry. So it's a lot of, a lot of officers and a, a lot of years that I've seen this process work as the congregation submits names of people that they think should be uh, considered, and we solicit that. And then session members solicit names, and we put them all together and discuss and carefully try to look without maligning anyone's reputation or anything else. How do they fit the biblical requirements. How shall we approach this? And then they are approached, and every year there are those who say, well, thank you for thinking of me this way, but no thank you. I I can't do it, or I choose not to do it. Some in the church don't realize that. You know, when they say to us, well, why isn't this one, or this one, or this one? We don't really want to tell you that that one's maybe been asked a lot of times and has not decided that God was calling them according to their view of the thing. Every year we do this, I think, carefully and cautiously and prayerfully, and every year it's very clear that it's not a process that one or a few or a small group of men are just manipulating in some political fashion because we're always a little bit surprised at how the slate emerges. God's sovereign hand is evident in this human decision. And we see in the third place here, besides bringing the men forward for initial consideration, this, this final uh, verification or seal, as it were, that was brought when two equally qualified men. It was as if the apostle said, well, look, how do we choose? It's not just a popularity contest. Here's, 
Here's Joseph Barsabbas, also called Justice, and Matthias, or Matthias. You choose your pronunciation. Someone wanted to correct my pronunciation. I can't tell you which is right. But anyway, here they are. They're both godly. They're both mature. Lord, how shall we choose? Well, they used what to us seems like an odd thing. People say it seems like a very worldly way to make a spiritual choice. But actually, it has an Old Testament basis. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This wasn't just pure luck of the draw. When it was consecrated by prayer, at least, you could say, Lord, guide this choice. Which man draws the long straw? We will believe that this is your choice. And we do somewhat, or at least an equivalent thing, not drawing straws, but when you as a congregation vote to confirm, we we say to you, if the process is all wrong up to this point, and the wrong man, and, and you know the reputation is wrong or something's wrong, vote against. Veto this choice. And in these various steps, God's people prayerfully and cautiously become clear. And we can say God has revealed His will. We believe God works by the Spirit through the action of the church. Now, in closing, I want to give you a thought you may not have had before here quickly. And bear with me. I know what time it is, but there's a lot in this service today. I want to propose something to you in closing here, and especially to the officers of the church. We don't, as Presbyterians, have saints. We certainly don't pray to them. We don't exalt them. We are all saints, of course. But I want to propose to you that Matthias be regarded as the patron saint, tongue-in-cheek, for every ordinary church leader. Here's what I mean. There actually are Bible interpreters who write about this passage and say, this was a mistake. Peter was wrong in leading them to choose somebody like this when Obviously, Paul should have been the 12th apostle, and he wasn't in the picture yet. And we know it was a mistake, these folks say, because we never hear another word spoken about Matthias. He completely disappears. The rest of the New Testament doesn't mention anything he ever did. And so he must have been a mistake. He didn't write a book in the New Testament. He didn't have great intellectual prowess to argue like Paul. No tales of his heroic missionary exploits are given. He was a mistake wrong. That's not only wrong, it's just as wrong as it could possibly be. You see, Matthias is the ordinary apostle. Is there such a thing as an ordinary apostle? He didn't stand out with his name in lights. He didn't have a book of Scripture. But take a look at the list that we're given here of the others, and I remind you that that's true of quite a few of these men. Philip is mentioned very briefly. Thomas mentioned mostly in a negative role as a doubter. Bartholomew, nothing. James, the son of Alphaeus, nothing. Simon, the zealot, nothing. Judas, the son of James, this is not Iscariot. The other Judas, nothing. We don't know what these men did. These men were the plow horses of the kingdom of God, not the thoroughbreds. They did their task. They went out and served the Lord. We know, we're, we're told by strong traditional evidence, that every one of these men except John died a violent death. So even the plow horses became martyrs. 
We know a little bit about Matthias. There's a tradition that he went to Ethiopia, and it even suggests that he ministered to cannibals. He was martyred in Judea, either speared to death or crucified late in his life. What I'm suggesting to you by by my tongue-in-cheek suggestion that Matthias be the patron saint for ordinary church leaders is this. That's most of us. You see, the thoroughbreds are few and far between. Thank God for the James Boyces of our generation or the Billy Grahams. Thank God in earlier generations for Paul and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Edwards and these great thinkers and writers and and speakers. But that's not most of us. The kingdom of God needs 10,000 lowly servants of the gospel for every one who's ever going to get any notice for it. And in fact, you really don't want that notice because it carries a heavy burden all by itself. I believe God, the supreme heart knower, has sovereignly positioned every leader in this congregation for ministry here, for things he wants that man or that woman, that Sunday school teacher, that children's worker to do in this generation that nobody else can do in the same way. And we should respect those leaders as God's choice unless they show us, of course, by their actions as Judas did, that they're not worthy of that respect. And just as prayer was used to select them, can I appeal to you? Pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors. We don't teach you God's Word because we have some heavenly endowment of great wisdom to do that. It takes prayer. It takes hours of hard work in the study. We need you to pray that God will lead us. Lead your elders as they meet. Lead your deacons and deaconesses. Remember that the best leader is the one who starts out and, in fact, frequently says, I'm not worthy to do this. In fact, I'm scared to death of the one who says, why didn't you ask me sooner? The order of Matthias the Obscure belongs to under-shepherds of the greatest Lord and the greatest King who will have us do things that will shine and endure even in eternity. Our Father, remind us of this. We come as your fallible leaders, sinners saved by grace like everyone else in the congregation. We consecrate ourselves. We ask for your power by the Spirit to do ministry, to see lives changed and transformed by the gospel. This is your work. You must do it in us. May it be so for your honor and praise. In Jesus Christ, amen.